Welcome to Outside the Box with former Senator and former Secretary of the Navy, uh, Jim Webb, a distinguished uh, fellow here at the Notre Dame International Security Center. And I'm Mike Desch. I'm the Packy JD Professor of International Affairs and the Brian and Janelle Brady Director of the Notre Dame International Security Center. Our topic today is national service or servitude, uh, question mark. And in addition to Jim and Mike, uh, you've got a real treat uh, in uh, our guest today, uh, Doug Banda. Uh, I've known Doug for a long time. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute in Washington, DC, uh, one of the most important sort of centers uh, for thinking about civil liberties and uh, all aspects of American government uh, and society. Uh, he worked as a special assistant to President Ronald Reagan and was the editor of a political magazine, uh, Inquiry. Uh, he writes regularly for a whole host of top-notch uh, publications uh, that I'd love to write for. <laughs> and Jim does write for uh, uh, quite often. Uh, he holds a uh, JD from uh, Stanford University. So we're gonna bring him into uh, the conversation. Uh, but let me first uh, turn it over to Jim uh, to talk a little bit about how we got on this topic. Well, Thanks, Mike. And as always, it was a, a very thorough introduction. And we're, uh, we're really happy, both of us, to, to have Doug Bando on the show today. Um, I've, I've read his stuff uh, for years. He's a, he's a real a strong thinker, a lot, a lot of times a contrarian, but always somebody who really does think issues through. Outside uh, the box. Yes, here we go. And we are. <laughs> and this is a great topic. You know, it's coming up more and more right now uh, in, in discussions and editorials, bits and pieces, talking about what, how can we bring people together in this, in this country. I don't think there's ever been a time in my memory where we have been so uh, divided in, in so many different ways, demographically, because of immigration patterns and geography involved in those, and, uh, professionally uh, and economically. Uh, and and uh, basically culturally, and we need to try to find ways where we can bring people together uh, in order to to uh, learn from one another from their different backgrounds and to learn to work together and to appreciate what it means to uh, have a a higher obligation when it comes to it to uh, the country. And so you know, you and I started talking about. You know, how about how about just having a discussion in terms of uh, some sort of national service, uh, some formula that might work that would also sort of measure up to the standards that we have uh, in terms of, of fairness and and those sorts of things. And this is this issue has been going on for a long time. Uh, you know, it's you know I was working on it years and years ago toward the uh, the very end of the Vietnam era. Should we have a draft? Should we not? Have a draft. Does a draft work? Is a draft uh, involuntary servitude, um, etc.? We we tend to forget that uh, two thirds of the people who served during World War II 
were drafted. And Vietnam was called the draftees war, but only one third of the people who served during the Vietnam era were draftees. 73% of those who uh, were killed in Vietnam were volunteers. Um, so, you know, it's, it has been a part of uh, our national service or our military service off and on for, for a very long time. Um, that, that doesn't mean that it, the same type of program would work today, frankly. And this is one, you know, one thing that I hope we can have a, a good discussion on if, if we could bring people together, how, how would we do that? How would we administer it? How would we do that in a way that would people, most people would be comfortable in terms of the issues that I, that I know Doug cares about. And so with that, you know, I, I, I think uh, let's just kick off a discussion and see where, where it goes. So Jim and I, uh both being of a contrary uh, bent, uh, often are on other sides of the barricades uh, on topics that we cover on outside the box. Um, but uh, in this particular case, whether it's evidence of the great harmonic convergence or something else, uh, I think he and I are probably closer on this uh, than any other topic aside from good bourbon. Um, and so uh, bringing uh, somebody like Doug in, uh, who I think is going to have a, uh, a more uh, distinct position from the two of us um, is particularly important. I always think that, you know, sort of the uh, great um, statement of the uh, differences of thinking uh, about this issue of national service and uh, the common wheel uh, was uh, the French philosopher Benjamin Constant's uh, famous essay on the liberty of the ancients and the moderns compared. Uh, ancient liberty, uh, which I think is where uh, Jim and I are, uh, is sort of epitomized uh, by uh, Pericles' funeral oration in Thucydides' history of the great war between Athens and Sparta in the fifth century BC. Pericles famously says that, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the highest freedom was uh, the freedom of the uh, Athenian people. And uh, the folks who died in the first year of the Peloponnesian War for Athens were better people because they died uh, for the uh, city-state. But what Constant points out is that view uh, of freedom uh, is pretty archaic. Um, and our modern notions of freedom, I think, are probably closer uh, to how Doug and his colleagues um, at Cato think about these issues. Freedom is synonymous uh, with uh, individual freedom. Um, and so uh, the big issue, it, it seems to me, uh, you know, that sort of undergirds the whole issue uh, of national service is how we think about uh, notions of, uh, of freedom. Uh, is uh, freedom ultimately the freedom of the in, uh, individual to do whatever the heck they want? Uh, or uh, does freedom involve uh, both rights and duties. Uh, where do you fall down on or fall, fall in on this, Doug? I, I think the question here is one of balance. 
I believe in virtue and I think freedom also is important. The question is how do you have a society that is both virtuous and free? I don't think you can go just for one or the other. I tend to be very skeptical that a, co a coercive program is going to produce virtue. And I think in this case, I get nervous when we talk about national service because service is a good thing. That doesn't necessarily mean it should be national in character, national run, you know, national produced. <laughs> now my political pedigree would give me away. I came into the Reagan administration with Martin Anderson, who was the advisor to Richard Nixon, who helped you know, midwife the all volunteer force. And I was recommended for the Mont Pelerin Society by Milton Friedman who served on the Freedman Commission, he was, was the Gates Commission, but he was one of the members on the Gates Commission that recommended going to the AVF. So that is very deep within my DNA. But I think it's important to recognize first is that service itself, I think is deeply within Americans' DNA. Uh, I mean, Alexei de Tocqueville in his wonderful book, Democracy in America had you know, extraordinary observations on American society and many other things. One of the wonderful quotes, I think, was he said, I have seen Americans making great and sincere sacrifices for the key common good. And a hundred times I have noticed that when needs be, they almost always gave each other faithful support. You know, and that was without conscription. I mean, our, we had local, you know, kind of militia duty that was mandatory, though you know, not entirely effective. We didn't go to national conscription until the Civil War, where both South and North uh, used it. So to my mind is, it's not a question of whether you should do something outside yourself. It's a question of what is the best way to balance both, I think, commitment to individual liberty, which is very important, and asking how do you form virtue and recognize the limitations, especially of the national state, and trying to do it politically through national institutions. Well, that's a, that was very well said, you know, and from both of you. Um, didn't realize we were going to go back 2,500 years to begin this debate. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think, first of all, I think most, most Americans traditionally have, have looked at service as duty uh, and, and uh, rather than as servitude, uh, something more uh, similar to, say, a tax. If you are asked to do something and for the good of the country, that it's a part of your duty to, to, to step forward. Um, the, the militia laws basically required all able-bodied men out on the frontier areas particularly to be a part of the local militia. And it was, uh, you know, it, from that to transition into the draft laws in the, in the Civil War was not a big step for, for most Americans. But here's where a, a point of agreement here. I mean, so having, having looked at this issue, I don't, first of all, I don't have a real problem with the draft um, if there were to be a draft or in, in the national service. In concept, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, and I think uh, the draft actually was very helpful to the military and for the people who went in and, and, and served. The, the uh, polling that we did after the Vietnam War, I, I use the Vietnam War again because it was the last war that was fought uh, with conscription and it became known as the draftees war. We did extensive poll, the best poll on this, uh, the Harris survey when I was a committee counsel in the, in the House side and in the Carter years when it really was not popular to have been in Vietnam, but they polled Vietnam veterans. 91% were glad they served their country, 74% enjoyed 
their time in the military to some extent. And two out of three said, given all the circumstances with the fall of Vietnam, they would, they would do it again. And that's, those are pretty powerful numbers in terms of how people felt about stepping forward and serving. serving. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One of them for me, I grew up in the military, uh, served in it. My family's got a long citizen soldier history, um, was that you were able to work toward concrete objectives with people from all different segments of American society. You, you came to understand the country in, in a way that uh, was different than you might have if you had just uh, stayed in your, in your own community, inside your own culture. The difficulty, or there are two major difficulties in terms of if we were to go into national service right now. The first is the cohort, the age cohort is much, much larger than anything that the military or, or existing programs would need. Uh, so you would have to be creating more programs or using uh, different sorts of uh, policies to, to have uh, different areas where people could work, community service. Uh, I, I could give you a whole list of them. But the other one, and this does go to Doug's point, is um, if you have to administer something like that, a large program, even, even in, the, in the military per se, you, you have to have a disciplinary system. You have to have a bureaucracy that administers it. And what do you do with people who aren't going to cooperate? What are you going to do with people who, who are, are disciplinary problems? Uh, you, have, you have that in, inside the military typically, but what do you do with that? You're going to have to discipline them. And what does that mean? If you throw them out, do you give them a bad discharge? Does that affect other things that uh, they can do in the rest of their lives? And, and I just think there, to move forward with something like this and to, and to actually do it, you would want to incentivize programs, not simply have coercive programs and put a, uh, something of a reward on having completed a program, whether it would be in the military where we give veterans benefits or uh, certain, certain benefits uh, for having done community service. I can think of a number of them, but if you could find a way to create you know, positive incentives and open up a lot of programs, then you know, this is something that could be done. I go back to the 1930s when the, the army uh, was was uh, probably about 130,000 people at the United States Army. There was no mission for, the, for them. There was a war that was starting to bubble up again in Europe. And uh, Douglas MacArthur did a very smart thing. He was chief of staff of the Army at the time. Uh, he worked a deal with the administration where the Army would administer the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps. It, Thousands upon thousands of young Americans uh, in, in areas that had very high unemployment were able to go in, work in, in a beneficial project in rural areas, et cetera, planting trees, doing stuff uh, under the administration of, of the, uh, the army and had you know, just tremendous experiences doing that. So, so I want to you know, sort of um, break down our discussion um, you know, along a, uh, a couple of uh, axes, uh, just to drill down a little bit deeper. Um, you know, one of them is uh, the principled arguments for and against uh, national service. Um, and I want um, Jim and Doug to uh, talk a little bit more uh, about the very interesting antimony, possible antimony between uh, duty and uh, virtue. Uh, and then we can talk about the uh, 
more about some of the practical issues um, that uh, Jim raised, uh, uh, particularly uh, about national military service um, in uh, the current uh, era in which uh, we certainly don't need uh, a mass army. I think the other access we ought to uh, distinguish um, and explore a little bit more deeply is uh, the notion of military service and the draft uh, versus non-military national service. Now, Jim sort of um, combined the two of these with his uh, very interesting vignette about uh, Douglas MacArthur and the interwar uh, role of the army. Um, but you know, much of the discussion today um, focuses on a more purely uh, civilian form uh, of national service. And I think for a lot of people, you know, the, it's sort of epitomized in AmeriCorps and, uh, and other things like that. But uh, Doug's point, let, let's just go back to the uh, principal uh, arguments uh, uh, for a moment. Um, Doug talked about virtue, and, and our mutual friend, uh, Will Ruger, uh, who's been a guest of ours on the program, is, uh, describes himself as a virtue libertarian. He's also a reserve officer um, in the, uh, the U.S. Navy. And it's very important for him uh, that uh, he's doing this uh, as a, uh, a purely uh, voluntary uh, act. Uh, and he sees that as uh, the virtuous uh, element of national service that might be lost in a uh, more coercive or a more mandatory uh, framework. Doug, can you say just a little bit more uh, about the, the virtue side uh, and free will and free choice as a, a, a inextricably linked with virtue? Well, character matters. I think it's much harder for government and government programs to reach inside somebody and make them better. And I do think the opportunities for making people bad are much greater. To my mind, it's very hard to teach virtue without having volunteerism involved. That is, people, I think, have to be able to choose between good and bad, really, to learn the whole question of virtue. I have the greatest respect for the military. I'm a military brat. I grew up on it. My dad was career Air Force. And even after that, I spent time on bases where my brother-in-law was career Air Force. My nephew's a SEAL. My uncle was uh, in the Navy. You know, so I've spent a lot of time on base, a lot of friends in the military, and I have great respect for it. I mean, the, I mean if you see my house, most of the art on my walls is actually military art. Uh, a lot of it French, a lot of different eras. But nevertheless, I think that military... Is an ex, you know, the the it's it is a service issue, and to my mind, part of this is with the national service issue that worries me. Military service is national; that is, it is serving the nation. Uh, civilian service, I think, is very different. If I'm working in a hospital or something, I'm serving somebody. I don't think I'm serving the nation, and I worry when we conflate civilian and national service. I don't think they're equal. You know, sending somebody to Fallujah is very different than saying the local park needs to be cleaned up. Could you please pick up the trash? And if you're talking about 4 million people at age 18 going into a national service program, new accessions last year, I think was 155,000 for all the services. You know, what that means is you know, 3 million 
well, you know, 800,000 will have to do civilian stuff. There's no, I think it's very hard to, to compare that. Um, so to my mind, you know, we do have a problem, I think, in terms of transmitting values. And a lot of that is breakdown of family, it's breakdown of communities, it's community institutions, it's all of those institutions that, frankly, Alexi de Tocqueville saw. I mean, churches and a lot of other mechanisms that shape. And my father grew up in Al-Qaeda, Iowa, which is, I don't know, a couple thousand people. I mean, his comment was, everybody knew you. They knew your parents. I mean, this was, you know, it could be very you know, stultifying in certain ways, but it's also powerful in shaping character because, you know, <laughs> what you did, you know, would reflect. I'm not convinced that national service can do that. And, and this is, I mean, I'll throw this out and then, I'll, then I'll, I'll stop, is one problem with, if you read national service literature, which I have done, I mean, this goes back a long way. Edward Mellamy in the late 1800s proposed a 20 year conscription, basically, from the, the 20s to the 40s. Uh, then it goes on to William James and the famous moral equivalent of war. He wanted to send people off. You know, not, not This is not picking up stuff at parks. This is going out in the fishing fleets. This is the coal mines. This is the ironworks. Yeah, we're going to really teach you. This is, this is going to be the equivalent of war. And it's gone on through the 20th century through a lot of people. It's become somewhat of a panacea. So if you read what's out there now, I mean, uh, you know, Larry Wilkerson, who I have a lot of respect for, Colonel Wilkerson, uh, and there's an academic at uh, University of Massachusetts who wanted to create the kind of COVID you know, uh, you know, service corps, you know, the, Wilkerson wanted to create the uh, global warming corps, is that national service becomes a panacea. National service is wonderful because we can make you into a better person. We can help bring people together. We can do, un, we can meet unmet social needs. We can deal with crisis. You know, so you suddenly look at this and you say, wait a minute, you're, you're loading so much into this uh, that I think it, you know, the expectations are enormous. And then I think you're almost certainly going to fail with them. But you know, I think the issue of character is a very important one and how to bring us together is an important one. But one of the problems here is young people seem to be the least affected by some of the worst of the, the politics we have today. I mean, the stories you read are it's, you know, young folks come home at Thanksgiving and it's their parents who've been listening to Fox News or something and are convinced that, you know, Barack Obama's a communist. That you know, it's not even clear to me that, uh, you know, national service would reach the place we most need it. So would it work there? Will it help create the character that we want? I remain very skeptical, but I do think we may want to look at somewhat differently civilian versus military and how those work, how they appeal to people. You know, do you feel like you're serving the nation? I think all of that gets wrapped up in a very complex kind of uh, you know, mix. Yeah, and let's uh, unpack that in a minute. But I, I want Jim to talk a little bit about duty. Uh, you know, when I, when I think of uh, your career, uh, Jim, uh, duty is a uh, runs like a red uh, thread uh, throughout it, um, and, and duty is in a way, you know, cl uh, uh, closely linked with virtue. Doing your duty, I think, is uh, regarded as a virtue, um, but it's also different from Doug and Will Ruger's and uh, other you know, sort of classical liberals uh, thinking about uh, virtue. Um, can, can you say a little bit more uh, about duty? Um, and do we still have a sense of, uh, of duty uh, in this country? Well, uh, first, um, Doug, you and I probably grew up in some of the same Air Force bases. <laughs> <laughs> My dad was a B-17, B-29 pilot, flew in the Berlin airlift, uh, spent 26 years in, in the Air Force. We moved around a lot. 
Um, and duty was one thing we talked about at the dinner table all the time. Also leadership, always very important. You know, some, you know, some families have different types of discussions <clears throat> when they're eating. Some people don't talk while they're eating, but m my dad was always, how do you lead people? You know, how do you motivate people? His, his, his uh, guiding axiom was you can make somebody do something or you can make somebody want to do something. And I think that's, that sort of goes through the, the, the thread of what you were, you were just talking about. Um, but I would like, I'd like to, you know, just to, to break down a little bit my, my thoughts on, on what, what you said. Um, first of all, if, if, when I'm looking at, at the idea of national service, it, it wouldn't be drafting or you know, conscripting 4 million young people and then parceling them out uh, to, to different places. Some, some of them, as you say, being sent to Fallujah. My son was actually sent to Ramadi. Um, and, you know, and some going to, going to pick up trash. But finding a way to, to get uh, the young people in the country involved. You know, what I hear over and over again from, the, from young, young people is they want to believe in something. I mean, for, for a lot of kids, that's belonging to a gang. They want to affiliate. You know, they, they want to have a sense of, of group identity but they want something bigger than themselves. Um, that doesn't have to be um, you know, compulsorily pulling people out and, and putting it in, into uh, different programs all over the place. And, and, and frankly, uh, you can incentivize uh, you know, certain types of conduct with rewards. For instance, we got a big problem with student loan forgiveness, the student loan forgiveness issue. Um, that the Democrats grab a hold of as a, you know, sort of a wave the flag political issue. And, and quite frankly, I'm, I'm a little cynical about forgiving uh, you know, the, uh, the student loans, that, uh, money that, that they owe when they were young people the same age who paid off their loans and there are others who couldn't even go to college. But if you could say, all right, if you will do community service, if you are, if you, whatever your career pattern is, and you, it could be uh, spending a, a year or two teaching in a in a in a you know rural community or in a in a you know hard hard pressed urban area, you can you can have student loan forgiveness uh, for the period of time that that you are doing that. They're they're stepping forward. They're you know they're they're doing something that is good for the community. They're doing something that's good for themselves. I think and, and there is a an incentive rather than a punishment. The, the military side uh, is, you know, I, given the size of the service right now, the military services right now, um, you, you don't need a conscription, but that doesn't mean that um, people wouldn't come to it that otherwise would not have gone into the military and found very good value out of it. One of my favorite generals when I was in the Marine Corps was General John Chasen, three-star general. Uh, who was in Harvard Law School and got drafted in World War II. And he, you know, he used to say, and his son was one of my artillery FOs when I was in Vietnam. <clears throat> and and, and you know, he used to say to his son, I never, I, I never would have gone into the Marine Corps. And I never thought I would have stayed. But that sort of citizen soldier step forward uh, serving is, is very, very useful um, in the military. And actually the military is lacking that today. The kind of you know, I, I really, I really, when I look back on the time I was in the in, in the Marine Corps, we had a you know a draft induced Marine Corps. I had three draftees in my platoon. Two were killed and one one lost both his life. Um, they were no different than the others in terms of how they looked at, at their duty. But 
when you have those and, and the people who were drafted and, and, and induced, you had people who were not afraid to question. And sometimes you need to have questions when you're in a, in a military environment. And we don't have enough of that right now. So uh, if you could separate those two, one, the military, and I, I agree with you, it's, it's a totally different thing, but to, to, to find and sponsor good programs. So for instance, um, the Peace Corps. Um, I, I can remember when uh, I was working on the Hill after the Vietnam War and the Carter administration came in and they decided that if you'd been in the Peace Corps, you would get veterans preference points for a federal job, just like somebody who'd been in the military. And I did not like that. But I thought the Peace Corps by itself was, was a, a way for people to step forward and do something that they were enthusiastic about and to show America around the world. So, Doug, let's take the uh, civilian side in a minute. Um, but I want to pick up uh, something uh, Jim had said about uh, the uh, military side. And, you know, he, he made the point with which I uh, fully uh, agree that um, the notion of a uh, citizen soldier uh, is good uh, for our military. Uh, as well as being good for our country. I'd go one step further, and I would say, as somebody um, who's uh, been pretty unhappy uh, with, uh, you know, the forever war that our country has been in, uh, at least since the mid-1990s, that I think uh, that um, had, the, had the cost uh, of going to war or staying at war uh, forever been more uh, broadly and equitably distributed across society. <laughs> We've been in fewer wars or in them uh, for fewer years. Um, and so how do you think about uh, that argument? Well, certainly having, I think, a citizen military makes sense. One problem of asking for a citizen military is if you're using it in what I must say are extraordinarily stupid ways, uh, you know, invading Iraq uh, and you know, other things, that it makes it harder to actually ask people to come forward and serve. I mean, I've thought, you know, would I, given our political leadership and the kinds of conflicts they get in, would I recommend to somebody to join? I mean, you know, I would still say, yes, you should join because you're probably the kind of person we want. But I would certainly be a bit hesitant in that how is it going to be used? Congress won't even vote to declare war. I mean, that they will complain if a president pulls people out of a war that they have not voted to declare. It's, it's extraordinary to me. I think that's a problem. I think in practice, look, conscription is the best way to, to fight a war. We fought Vietnam with it. It provided bodies that were needed. It, it created opposition, but it took a long time for that opposition to build. We got up to over 500,000 people in Vietnam. I mean, we fought that war, you know, despite protests at home, you know, people trying to shut down the Pentagon, et cetera. And it strikes me the moment that the, the Pentagon had trouble with Iraq was in the 2000s, there was a point where those recruiting numbers were going down. People didn't want to show up, for, you know, get it back into the reserves or looking at, oh, my goodness, if, I, if I'm in the reserves, you're going to send me every other year. I mean, I, you know. I, I mean, I'm supposed to be an emergency uh, you know, backup. I'm not supposed to be a substitute for active duty. Volunteerism can shut down a stupid war in a way that conscription won't. As for the argument that the way to get, you know, if only policymakers were affected, I mean, 
Jim is a fairly you know, rare one to have had you know a son or a daughter in combat. I mean, and this is the problem of if you're you know, bringing in 155,000 out of 4 million 18-year-olds a year into the military, you spread them out, and then who gets the, the non-combat postings? I mean, at least traditionally that you know, influence mattered there, not, you know, and it's very hard to get around that. And I mean, some people do want the combat. I mean, they're very serious about that. But we, I think Vice President Pence, is his, or is it, there was a senator whose son, I think, was serving in Afghanistan. I mean, you know, there are a couple, but there are really only a couple that I'm aware of. So I don't think that that would slow things down very much, that the reality is the reserves, and again, with the Iraq, the reserves help do that because reservists, you're pulling out of communities. So suddenly I know so-and-so, it's the local, I don't know, barber, and he's gone, you know, he's off and suddenly, and that person dies. I mean, my pastor lost a nephew in uh, you know, Afghanistan, killed in one of the blue on uh, you know, green attacks. Um, you know, so that my congregation suddenly felt that i mean they were aware of that but i don't i don't think that the the draft is going to materially change the calculus of policymakers i think a draft makes it very easy a president wants to go to war claims that he or she has the power to do it has the requisite military they need if they need to ramp up you know kind of bringing in some more people they can do so so i'm skeptical of that i mean i wish that there was an easy way to do it but it looks to me you know, like that the conscription simply won't at least give us that benefit. And that would be a very real benefit if it, it was true. I, let me uh, just give you a reaction to that. <laughs> if you look at uh, the Vietnam War, which again, um, two thirds of the people who went into the military during that period were not draftees. They were, they were volunteer or they may have been draft induced, but they volunteered. Um, when it did take a long time, um, for uh, the Vietnam War to end. Um, and one of the great uh, steps that, that brought about that was, you know, we, we, when we started the Vietnam War, <clears throat> when we started the Vietnam War, uh, we had a very unfair draft. You know, if you were in college, you were not going to be conscripted. And so, for the first time in the history of large-scale war, the elites in this age group were not going into the military. It was not touching them. There's a line in my my novel, uh, Fields of Fire, about uh, an, a Harvard fellow who comes out to the, uh, combat in, in Vietnam and looking back and said, Mark went to Canada, Goodrich went to Vietnam, everybody else went to grad school. Um, but when they eliminated that loophole and created the, the draft lottery uh, so that you weren't getting that excuse anymore uh, for, uh, you know, to stay in college and not go, that's when the protests really started heating up. And if it, it was a fair draft caused the, the kind of reaction that could have happened uh, towards the beginning of the, the war. And I used to say, um, you know, when I was in the Senate, my son was in Iraq. And I used to look around and, and literally think that if half the people in that Senate chamber had a, a close relative who was in uh, the military or at risk of having to go, this would be resolved a lot, a lot differently and a lot more quickly. Um, so, you know, it, it, the other thing that I think we need to understand about the military today is that it still is in many ways a citizen soldier uh, military. 
I, when I was putting together this GI Bill that we eventually got passed, I wanted to know from, from DOD what, what percentage of the people in each service uh, are one-term people who leave the military on or before the end of their first term of enlistment. And it was 70% uh, for the Marine Corps, about 70, 75% for the Army, and a majority of the people in the, in the Navy and the Air Force at that time. That's a good sign. But it's a it's a small group of people. It's the the people with now the, the mostly the traditionalists uh, and the you know young people coming in from um, you know neighborhoods and communities where the economy's bad are going, uh, and and the rest of the country is not even affected by what by by the policies that are being put into place. Um, so for all of those reasons, I you know I think the broader uh, broader the base of the people in the military, the more hedge you have against you know, the, the misuse of them. And that's why in, in the GI Bill, the one, one reason I want to put that through was it was giving people like a full scholarship, you know, the, the best GI Bill in history. If you serve, we're going to pay your tuition, we're going to buy your books, and we're going to give you a monthly stipend, just like the people who came back from from World War II, and it was to broaden the base of the people coming into the military. I, I sort of see uh, a deep paradox, Doug, in American public opinion in terms of the military. Uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, the military is uh, one of the few national institutions um, that enjoys, uh, you know, much public esteem. I mean, uh, opinion poll after opinion poll, uh, they put uh, military even above college professors in terms of honorable vocations. I can't believe that, but, uh, uh, but the data, the data seems to be out there. So on, you know, on the one hand, boy, you know, uh, uh, you go to a football game, even a Notre Dame football game, and we have the flyover and. You know, we have the flag, which is brought out by the color guard from one of our uh, ROTC detachments. And, you know, you, you see uh, a soldier in uniform at the airport or on the plane and people are, you know, offering first class seats and things like that. So on the one hand, you know, there, there is this uh, affection. On the other hand, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of depth because, and take the football game as a metaphor, uh, the flyover and the national anthem is about two minutes, and then everybody wants to get on with the game. And likewise, uh, many of us in the airport who are slapping uh, the soldiers on the back and thanking them for their service uh, do not have uh, children uh, or nieces or nephews or even you know, children of friends uh, who actually serves. So there's a, a, a weird, you know, sort of uh, love uh, ignorance relationship that I think our current uh, system produces. And I, I, I just got this, get this feeling that it's, it's not healthy. Uh, what, what do we do about that? Well, I think one of the real problems here is simply, you know, the size of the age cohort versus this number that the military needs. And I think Jim is right that the conscription in Vietnam had a bigger impact because it was a smaller age cohort and we took more people. 
So that was spread. And once you got away from some of the exemptions, the, the ones that got Dick Cheney off, you know, five times from having to go, you know, then people are much more likely to have it impact themselves or their community. I think the problem today is, again, if you're taking 155,000, even if you bump that up a bit, out of 4 million, I mean, the impact and the number of people affected is going to be very, very small. Uh, and I, to some degree, I think what we've got is kind of cheap patriotism. That is virtually no one, I mean, you know, a, a huge number of people have absolutely no connection at all with the military, what the life is. I mean, even as a dependent, at least I, you know, I knew what it was. I mean, you know, I lived among it. I lived on bases, you know, et cetera. You know, I mean, I, I was part of that. And I have friends and family, my members of my uh, you know, Marine Corps, my uh, you know, associate pastor at church recently retired from you know, his career there. I mean, this is somebody we've been in contact with you know, for years. You know, that, that most people don't have that. So I think it's they kind of know they should be pleased other people are doing this but they frankly have no interest in doing it themselves. So the way you kind of satisfy that is you, you praise people, but you certainly wouldn't think about you know, going off and doing it yourself. Okay. I don't, Please, Doug, sorry. I'm just skeptical that the, you know, the answer to that is to conscript people. But if you're going to conscript, to my mind, the military is the one obvious place you have, I think, a pretty powerful argument that if there's genuine necessity, and I, I once wrote and argued the question, what is necessity? I mean, to me, that's the real issue, because you get in that argument today of there are folks who say, well, we're having some trouble meeting requirements. And, you know, the military says only 30 percent of uh, people are actually you know, theoretically can meet the requirements, giving physical and other conditions. And you know, given the commitments we have around the world, my reaction is well, that's getting it wrong, is your commitments are not preordained. You know, conscription is a cost. So you've got to decide what, what is essential, you know, protecting your country from existential threats, World War II, this is serious stuff. Conscripting people so you can invade Iraq, you know, strikes me, well, that, that's, I mean, this is ridiculous. It, it's, it's a bad decision. It's not only not helping, it's actually hurting. Uh, so the, the problem, I think, but, but it strikes me, military has that unique character. And again, I think it is truly national service in a way. The other stuff I wouldn't even call national service. I'd say it's service, but it's different. Now, I don't think we need to conscript people, but I think that if there's one element of service that is most important for a republic to spread around, I'd say it's military service. And I, we so, don't do that very well, but I don't so have a Doug, good answer to that. You, you made a very powerful practical case um, against the draft. And I, I, I think ultimately uh, as a, a vehicle for national service, um, you know, given the, the nature of modern military technology, and the, the situation that we're in, the era of the mass army is over. Um, so this really brings us to uh, civilian national service, or let's cut out the national mm -hmm. and just say uh, civilian service. And, and I think, I don't want to speak for Jim, indeed I can't because he won't let me speak <laughs> for him. Um, but I, I, I do Actually, think- Actually, let, let me do it for myself in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do think the uh, idea of uh, service has a, a salutary uh, political effect uh, as part of uh, citizenship. Um, that the idea that you have uh, an obligation or a set of duties 
in addition to rights and an obligation to your uh, fellow citizens that can be uh, discharged uh, through some form of service, whether it's national or whether it's community it is immaterial in my view. Um, and I think the fact that most people don't agree with that um, is, uh, you know, implicated uh, in a lot of our current problems. Uh, the Harvard uh, government professor, uh, Robert Putnam, uh, you know, chronicled quite eloquently um, the increasing atomization of our society with that great metaphor about uh, bowling alone. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm happy to let people cultivate their own gardens to a certain extent, but don't we have some communal or collective responsibilities as well? And how do we discharge them absent some uh, notion of, uh, uh, of community service or national service? Well, look, can I start on that? Um, first of all, <clears throat> a, uh, a, just a correction on the, uh, the data with respect to service in, in Vietnam. There were 27 million males uh, of, of the age group during the Vietnam War who, who might have gone into the military. Of those 27 million, 9 million went into the military. Of those 9 million, 2.7 million ever went into Vietnam. And of the ones who went into Vietnam, at any one time, maybe 10% were actually in direct combat. Although those, those numbers, uh, it was a constant number of about 10%. So you, you actually had a lot more than 10% of the people over there in, in, in combat. But, you know, it wasn't, um, you know, a, a, a smaller uh, age group that made it, uh, you know, unpopular. Uh, and it was uh, the, the political breakdown in, in society at the time. And again, once once a fair draft was put into place, then the anti-war activities significantly increased. Now, with with what you're you're talking about, Mike, just uh, again to, to reinforce something I, I, I was saying a little while ago, young people want to have something to believe in. I hear it over and over again. I got six kids. They 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 range the decades, but I have six kids. I'm and my my 14 year old. I hear from her all the time. You know, you're in people who think that they are disengaged from society are not paying attention to social media. There is a bombardment in, in social media from from, in my view, from the extreme left uh, progressive movement in terms of sort of Saul Alinsky stuff. You know, are you are you a part of this group or if you, if you don't agree with us on this sort of thing, then you're going to be. Uh, outside the group, you're, you're, you're not, you know, you're not going to be a part of the group. And there's a larger message in here that somehow we need to get a hold of. And that's why I, 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 I totally agree. I don't think this should be necessarily compulsive, but it should be incentivized in many different ways. You know, if you're living in West Baltimore and you don't see a future, you know, maybe there's some programs that could be put into place where, where, where young people can work together and. And they don't have to be federally administered, you know, et cetera. We tried this over and over again, half-baked ways ever since I was 25 years old. You know, we had, we had Peace Corps, we had Action, we had AmeriCorps, we had VISTA. 
Um, but they were, there were words, you know, there, there was nothing really behind it structurally that could put things into place. And if we had policies, if I were in the Senate right now, I'd be putting this on, on, on the top, you know, one of the top things I'd be working on. Can we create policies that incentivize uh, people to come forward and, and do public good? Uh, there, there are a lot of things out there that, that, that they could be doing. And so, you know, this doesn't have to be, you know, you, you're going to step forward and you're going, you're going to go over there and, um, and do something or we're going to put you in jail, you know, or, or if you're in the military, we're going to give you a bad conduct discharge. No, but it's if you can complete a, a, a part of this, uh, you know, a part of your obligations can be uh, taken care of. And you know, the, the, the Swiss are funny. I, years and years ago, I, I spent time with the Swiss breaking down their military and understanding how it works societally. Mandatory, mandatory military service for males, 95% did some uh, uh, time in the, in the Swiss military. They actually have man mandatory gun ownership rather than gun control. Um, Assault rifles. Uh, uh, you got to keep you got to keep your rifle in your in your bedroom till you're 50 years old or whatever. I can't remember now. But for those who were not qualified for various reasons, they they paid a higher percentage of their taxes uh, for the same period of time as, you know, the, the people who were in their this 25 or 30 year program that, that, that this was have. We don't need to do that. But I mean, there are ways to, to have government policies that don't necessarily you know, put a structure in, in, into place in, in order to, to get things going and get people energized. There's a, a very real split you know, when you think about national service between advocates of really big national service, which almost always is mandatory, because if it's not mandatory, you won't get the people who need it the most, and some kind of a system where service is out there, but decentralized and in certain ways, you could even argue you're not, not really organized or you're certainly not centrally organized. And I think these are very, very, very different things. I mean, any one program, even the Peace Corps has had its problems. So one, you know, one has to be careful looking at any of these as kind of a panacea. But you know, we have a system today where there's AmeriCorps and there's kind of teaching America. There's, you know, there, there are a number of different things out there of opportunities. There are some school systems that have uh, mandatory uh, service as part of uh, you know, kind of graduation. That is, you have a service project, you have to spend time. You know, and there, there are arguments over exactly what counts. I mean, do political campaigns count or not? But nevertheless, there's an attempt to try to inculcate that sense that there's, uh, you know, more of a duty out there. I mean, this is important within churches. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, I tell people it's a question, it's kind of concentric circles that move out. I mean, the Apostle Paul wrote that, uh, I mean, in the early church, if you didn't uh, work, you didn't eat, and then they spent time in the uh, Jerusalem community. How do we take care of the widows? How do we make sure that food is distributed? There's a great passage in Galatians where Paul writes, you know, that uh, be good to all people. I mean, there's a sense that there are duties to other human beings that move outward. You know, I mean, at one point, I think it's John that may write, writes that it's, you know, the, the greatest kind of gift you can give or the greatest duty is to give your life for another. You know, so there's, I think these things are very important and those can be taught in churches. It's harder to teach them outside if you, know, if you don't you know, share the same values. Um, and I think that it makes sense of looking for incentives. We have a fair amount of those already. I mean, there's certain part of the student loans program there are for, you know, if you teach, if you do certain public service, there are some programs that allow you to write off loans. There are medical programs, or if you 
commit to you know, serve as a doctor in underserved areas that uh, in fact you get, whether it be your medical loans or other things, they get remitted. You know, where they, you know, they take you out to very rural areas, areas of Native Americans and other things that where you simply don't have much medical care. So I, mean, all, I think that that is a very good idea of how can you come up with programs that work? How do you find, I think, and again, it's an incentives. How do you encourage people? A lot of that, and let me say, part of this needs to be modeled. I mean, one of the, my problems on the advocates of national services, they're almost always, you know, 60 year old males who are complaining that you know, America's falling apart because 18 year olds are greedy and selfish. Uh, I mean, I, this is, I mean, this is just, oh yeah, boy, that's a really, that's the way to be persuasive. It's everybody else's fault. It's all those terrible, you know, kind of young people. And we need to fix that. And we have a really great idea. We will make them go do good things without any sense of lead. I mean, that was always my problem with Dick Cheney. Thank you. You want another war, but you couldn't be bothered when you were of that age. So I'm supposed to actually give you credibility and kind of take that. As, and let me just read you a passage. And, it, and I think it's just, I want to give this because you, know, you kind of wonder why, why do my hackles go up when I hear national service? I mean, the, the literature there is, is wild. Now, I, I, Jim, I don't remember, did you serve with Harris Wofford? Because that, you know, Harris Wofford was Pennsylvania Senator one term. Before that, Harris Wofford was a co-chairman of the uh, Committee for the Study of National Service. And in 1979, they put out a report and it's a fan, I mean, I have this old copy, I don't think it's even online, I mean, whatever. And this is the, the kind of, they introduced the subject and this is kind of the mindset. And this is why it causes people like me to get very nervous. International comparisons also fire some American imaginations. Millions of young people serve social needs in China as a routine part of growing up, many are commanded to leave the crowded cities and to assist the countryside. Castro fought illiteracy and mosquitoes in Cuba with units of youth. Interesting combinations of education, work, and service to society are a part of the experience of youth in Israel, Jamaica, Nigeria, Tanzania, and other nations. The civic spirit being imbued in youth elsewhere in the world leaves some Americans wondering and worrying about Saturday night fever, unemployment, the new narcissism, and other afflictions of American youth. Not afflictions of American society, not afflictions of you know, a consumer society, no, no, of American youth. So I read something like that, and I, I kind of have the old re the reaction where Gerber, or I guess it was Gehring who allegedly said, when I hear the word culture, I reach for my revolver. I mean, I, I read uh, that and I reach for, you know, I reach for my, you know, whatever, my, my Swiss, uh, you know, AK-47 or whatever you know, up above. <laughs> Well, you know, that's I think we, we lived we lived through that fantasy and we kind of resolved it. And the, the situation right now with with the, uh, you know, the vastly separated demographic uh, cultures in the, in the country and, and the, the ever increasing separation from the top and the bottom. And, uh, you know, this this isn't just you know, old people looking down and, 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 and saying, you know, we've got hippies out there. You know, we used to say when I was in the Marine Corps, you know, you scratch a hippie, you find a Porsche, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, this is, this is something that I think the country really needs, you know, not a, you know, I love, I love that quote. I did not serve with Harris Walker, but I, you know, I, I love that quote about, you know, Mao allowing people to go out into the countryside to work. I think they, what did they call that? The, the, the red, the red, guards. the red guard. The, yes. Uh, uh, 
we know that drill. We don't yeah. want that drill. At, at the risk of piling on and uh, being the old man on the lawn yelling at the kids to get off of it, um, I, I want to talk a, a, a little bit uh, about the uh, uh, religious background uh, of community service because you know I'm at a Roman Catholic institution and the the notion uh, of uh, you know common the common weal and uh, obligation to your fellow man um, is uh, you know deeply infused um, in Roman Catholicism and uh, in the Notre Dame ethos. So that's a good thing. The bad thing, though, is I've got some colleagues in uh, my department who are experts on religion and American politics, and their data is overwhelming that the younger generations are the, uh, you know, the rising secular uh, majority uh, or soon to be majority um, in this country. And so, you know, the, the founding fathers uh, regarded um, religious belief, or at least religious practice, as an important buttress uh, for liberty because it made it possible to, you know, count on people doing the right, the virtuous thing, uh, because you know, uh, otherwise they believed uh, that they would uh, suffer fire and brimstone. But that's less and less common, and so the the argument uh, for young people that you know, you ought to uh, be uh, committed to uh, your fellow man can less and less be grounded in the gospel uh, or St. Paul, and it has to be grounded in something else. And in a modern big L liberal secular society uh, where fewer and fewer people really have that old time religion, what is it, do you think, Doug, that we can ground virtue in, uh, if not faith? It's much harder. Even Thomas Jefferson's view was essentially, you needed this biblical worldview for a republic to survive. Dwight Eisenhower promoted civil religion, which as someone who really believes, I find civil religion in certain ways quite obnoxious. Nevertheless, his understanding was if, you, if it, your views are rooted in the transcendent, it's much more powerful. And I think that is a very real problem today is how do you transmit values? But it's not clear to me that in that context, programs do that either. That is, well, why should I feel a duty to other people? Why should I feel a duty to the collective? Why should I feel a duty to the nation without you know, those transcendent feelings? I think remains a problem under any case that we, you know, we have voluntary programs today, which the people who go to them, I think are most interested in them, most likely to benefit from them. And in many ways, they aren't the problem, that in a sense. So the question is, how do you get the people who potentially are the problem? And how long, you know, do, to, to what extent, how long do these kind of, the, the, a transformation of character last? I mean, I think it's very problematic what we face today, which is why I like the idea of, kind of a decentralized, disaggregated attempt to say, well, how do you promote, you know, you get people talking about values, get local school systems saying this is important for whatever reasons they want, you know, try to explain it, put it into the, the program, you know, the, uh, the, you know, I mean, it's, it's one of your, if as a senior, it's one of the things you have to do. 
you know, to come up with individual programs that have a real purpose. That is, the Peace Corps, in theory, does something beyond just try to bring people together. It has a root. It has a an objective, which, if you're part of that, hopefully teaches certain things. I mean, one of the good news, and again, this is why I think that if our real concern is that people, uh, this kind of disaggregation, and certainly the disunity we see, is that I think that is worst among the oldest. I mean, at least among young evangelicals. I mean, I personally, I, I'm an evangelical. I'm horrified at kind of the political character that much of my faith leaders are, would seem to have taken. Young evangelicals are very different. You know, they are not thrilled about tying themselves to one particular politician whose name I won't mention. You know, they are not thrilled, you know, with, in their view at least, you know, kind of skating over admonitions to help the poor and to care about creation. You know, so I see hope actually, at least now this is again, smaller numbers, you know, it's, and you're right in terms of young people are getting out, exiting out certain ways of faith. Nevertheless, I think there's certain hope of young people that we're seeing some of this happen already. And the question is then how do you tap into that? How do you encourage that? And I think that Jim's idea of incentivizing is useful, is help persuade people. I'm not going to force you to do it because I have real problems with that. And I think that it has a lot of negative impacts. How do I make it easier for you? How do I have options out there? How do you feel approval and support from community, from family, from church, from, to me, that's create an environment that is welcoming to service. That I think is very useful. And I'm not sure how programmatic that is. Part of that is how do we come, that's where, how do we come together and get that message in different faith communities? How do we have a, the human, I mean, humanists can support this. I mean, any, you know, whatever your philosophical viewpoint, how do you get that message out there? And that's what I would like to see. And I, I think Jim's absolutely right. We, you know, we need service. Uh, I'm just not convinced that federal programs certainly do it well, not a, na you know, a, nas a national mandatory one. Then the question is what else, what else is out there? How do, how do we mix that? with private education, with encouragement, other sorts of things, and, and to make it into a whole that may help move us in, in positive directions. We desperately need that now, certainly. So Jim, if you were still in the Senate and Doug was uh, on the other side of the aisle, how much distance do you think there really is between you and what would be the, uh, you know, the compromise point moving forward on uh, a, a real initiative for, uh, national service or some sort of service? Well, you know, I think the, the best way to govern is to bring people together and, and encourage, you know, discussion. I, I, I go back on the, the criminal justice reform issue that I, I picked up when I was running for the Senate in terms of, as a part of a, uh, my, the, the campaign, I was saying, we, we have a broken system, we have to fix it. And I have political advisors telling me, you know, you're committing political suicide in, in, in uh, Virginia to say that we're putting too many people in jail for, you know, for different kinds of things. But I spent two and a half years at hearings when I was, was in the Senate. We listened to people from all different sides. We, we put a, uh, a piece of legislation together to, to create a national commission to examine all of the choke points in the criminal justice system. And I got buy-ins from a hundred different organizations in this country, all the way from uh, the, the, the ACLU and the, the Marijuana Project to the National Association of, of Sheriffs and the International Association of Sheriffs and uh, International Association of uh, Chiefs of Police. 
Um, and that's what I would be doing right now. I don't think that, uh, I, don't, I don't think it would be difficult for, for Doug and, and myself to sit down and try to figure out a, a way to, to put some sort of a, a proposal together. And with your other point, which I, I thought Doug gave a great answer on, on the, uh, you know, the, the religious side of this, you know, in, in the secular, the age group coming up, secular as they may be, they, they do have faith and a lot of different faiths. So that's not as overt, I think, when I look at the young people talking about pushing one, you know, one over another. But I think the average human being wants to, wants to do two things. The young, the young person looking up, they want to live a purpose-filled life and they want to do good things. And that's, that's what you can do if you are able to bring some of these programs together, give them something to, to, to be excited about that, that has a larger uh, mission to it. Well, and that's a great note uh, to wrap up on, uh, not only because we're out of time, but uh, it's also a, uh, uh, a very optimistic and indeed uh, inspirational take um, on a uh, very vexing um, but important topic. So, uh, Jim, thanks as always. Uh, pleasure doing business with you. Doug Bandow, thank you uh, for uh, coming into the uh, lion's den of communitarianism here uh, on Outside the Box, and uh, in fact, exposing that uh, the gap uh, uh, on this issue, at least uh, between the uh, three of us, is uh, not nearly as great as uh, it might have seemed uh, at uh, first uh, blush. Uh, thank you. So, thank you, Doug. And, and again, Mike, as always, thank you. And thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap. <laughs>